Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, is one of the most frightening books ever. And it's the first of all of the books that we have seen that our sages in the Talmud were terrified of it. They really were terrified of it. The other ones, okay, they struggle with their, whatever difficulties they have, they interpret, we, we get all excited about it, we move on. Not the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel was yea close, so it seems, to being censored from the Bible by our early sages. They thought it was too dangerous. And there are two particular dangers with the book of Ezekiel, and they're both in source number one over here. Rabbi Yudah said, That man be remembered for blessing, namely, Hananiah ben Chizkiah. But for him, the book of Ezekiel would have been withdrawn. In other words, this one rabbi, Hananiah ben Chizkiah, saved the day. The book of Ezekiel was this close to being voted out of the Bible. But he stayed up all night, literally. He burned the midnight oil, right? For its words contradict the words of the Torah, which they do. <laughs> and and that's, that's what makes it so troubling. What did he do? 300 garab of oil were brought up to him, and he sat in an upper chamber and expounded it. Literally, he burned the midnight oil. He just got up there to the attic, wouldn't go to sleep until he fixed the problems. So the first problem is, and this will have to wait two weeks from today, Final, our final session on the book of Ezekiel, we'll talk about the differences. We have a rule, which is an ironclad rule that goes back to the earliest rabbinic layers, that once God revealed the laws to Moshe in the Torah, no later prophet ever can get laws that differ from that. And the party line, which is a good party line, is that all of the prophets come to uphold and support the Torah. They never get revealed law that challenges, either for more strict or for more lenient. They don't challenge Torah law ever. They don't get laws through revelation. Prophets, like later rabbis, are allowed to function like rabbis and interpret, make rabbinic legislation. That's fine. But they won't get new divinely ordained or divinely revealed laws that compete with the Torah. Well, there's one exception to that rule, which I'm sure you've already picked up what it is, the book of Ezekiel, where God reveals laws to Ezekiel in the final nine chapters of the book, 40 through 48, there are laws that visibly contradict the Torah and they were given to him via revelation. Uh Uh-oh. So the sages said, that's it. This book threatens one of the most basic tenets of what we understand prophets to be, which is prophets come to uphold the Torah. They can never challenge it. Let's banish the book. So Hananiah ben Chizkiah said, wait, wait, wait. Give me one night. So he burns the midnight oil, and he sat there and resolved all of the difficulties. And that's what saved the book. That's good, because I'm glad the book is here. Bad news for all of us is that we have absolutely no idea what those resolutions were. They're gone. We have none of them. We have one. There's a record of one of these resolutions. I have no clue what, how in the world he was able to resolve them, because honestly, I don't even see how it's possible. But then again, that's why he is him and I'm me. He obviously was able to do this. But... None of us have any clue what exactly he did to make it work, but it worked enough on that day to keep the book in the Bible. So problem number one, which we'll talk about in two weeks, is that Ezekiel is in fact the only prophet in our Bible who gets divine legislation, laws. And specifically, these laws compete on occasion, not always, but you just need one and you got a problem. Compete with Torah law. They actually are different laws, just to give you one, just so that you get a sense of it. In the Torah, a regular Kohen is allowed to marry a widow, but not a divorcee. The high priest is not allowed to marry either. A high priest is not allowed to marry a widow or a divorcee. 
Ezekiel gets some laws for the priesthood. And one of the laws is regular Kohanim must not marry widows or divorcees. It's stricter. But stricter or not, he's not, that shouldn't have happened. He shouldn't be getting divine legislation with a law that's different from that of the Torah. It's not supposed to happen. He's the only one where it happens. And there are bunches of others as well. Okay, so whatever Hananiah ben Chizkiah did, bless, bless his soul. I bless him all the time. But I have absolutely no idea how he resolved it. Here's the other danger. The rabbis taught, we're in the middle of source number one. It's the last word of the fourth line. The rabbis taught, there was once a child who was reading at his teacher's house the book of Ezekiel. I want to meet that kid, but of course I won't be able to. Because not only did he live many years ago, but even in the story you wouldn't have gotten to meet him. He apprehended what chashmal was. In other words, whatever chashmal, I don't know what chashmal is. Today it means electricity. I can tell you what that is too. I don't know how it works, but I, I, I know how to flip a switch as well as the next guy. But what I, what chashmal in Ezekiel's vision is part of the classic celebrated, what we call the celestial chariot vision. Ezekiel has many of those. We see this unbelievable chariots and angels are all over the place and God's presence is there too. There's a bunch of those. There's one in chapter 1. There's another in chapter 3. Rolling along, there's a little glimpse of one in chapter 8. You got one big one in 10. You got another one over there in 43. I think I got all of those right. I'm just rattling them off. But I'm pretty sure that all of these things are correct. There are a lot of those. This is the most explicit visual description of God and the heavenly host ever. We have nothing... You have that one vision in the book of Isaiah, where it's a couple of verses, you know, kadosh, 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 but it's not nearly as vivid, as long as, this is really detailed. So one kid sat there reading Ezekiel, let's say chapter one, and he actually got to a deeper layer of something there. He he got too close to God. And that's a bad thing to do. It's good to get close to God, but never too close. He apprehended what chashmal was, meaning he uncovered one of the deepest secrets of this prophecy, whereupon a fire went forth from chashmal and consumed him. The kid just died. So they sought to suppress the book of Ezekiel. So there's two dangers in our book, and these are the two dangers. One is that there are actual laws, which already is a problem, to be honest, but at least if they all match those in the Torah, all right, God is reminding him of the Torah. But they contradict the Torah, at least on occasion. And then the other problem is that you get way too close to God in this book. It's pretty serious business. The mystics love this book. They see this as the way of getting close to God. The philosophers, like Rambam, they also saw the book of Ezekiel in, in, a, in a more rationalistic, physics, metaphysics sort of way. They also saw the book of Ezekiel as the pinnacle of where you want to go. Yeah. I'm just a little confused. You're not the only one, but yeah. So it says, you know, Hananiah, then Hezekiah, but for him, it would have been withdrawn. So right. then it says, what did he do? First of all, who's the he? Hananiah ben Chizkiah, he resolved the contradictions. But then it's through the he made it doesn't tell us how he resolved it but he resolved all the contradictions while burning the midnight oil and that convinced the sages to keep the book oh that's what's happening I over see here. what you're getting yes okay. so, just out of curiosity uh, this score, um, you're saying how Ezekiel had propounded that uh, he was stricter on the issue of the common name marrying but I noticed one category you did not include in either case, which I know is de Rabbanon. That, that's the issue of, uh, understood, understood. That, that goes far beyond. He's not talking about that at all. I'm just interested in what he does talk about. It. What you're raising is an important rabbinic question, correct. Yeah. I just want to know when it was, when it was resolved, how was it resolved? Was it, was it resolved according to Torah Moshe, or was it resolved according to the revelation? 
The answer is, his argument was, beats me how he pulled this one off, that in fact, the book of Ezekiel does not contradict the Torah. The Torah always wins. That's not even an issue. But he somehow was able to show, again, one of the greatest geniuses of all time, I present him to you, I don't know how it's even possible, but he, he did it. He did it enough to convince all the rest of the sages that, they, that the book of Ezekiel is not saying anything different. So the Torah always wins in all of these, in all of these issues. So those are the two c- conflicts that we have. Now, honestly, when I teach the book of Ezekiel, my students come in quaking, how are we going to do this? I'm like, relax. This is actually one of the easiest books to teach. It really is. I've never had a problem with the book of Ezekiel. There are two categories of texts in the book of Ezekiel. There are the celestial chariot ones and the heavenly vision of the temple at the end in chapters 40 to 48, where I have absolutely no idea what they mean. So I just say, we're going to skip those. And then there's all the other ones, which are perfectly manageable, and that's how we do it. And it works out well every single time. And so I am interested in those chapters that I skip. There are some important principles that come out of it, but there are certain things that are far beyond us. So I don't pretend to know them. I I have no idea what they're talking about. But at the very least, you can derive some principles from them, and they will help us understand the book. In terms of the historical setting, Ezekiel was a younger contemporary. I shouldn't say younger. He began his prophetic tenure later than Jeremiah, 35 years later, which means odds are high he was also younger. But I can't promise you that. He could have begun when he was 70, and Jeremiah could have begun when he was 18. And then, in fact, Ezekiel would be Older of the two, but he certainly started later. He began in the year 592 BCE, six years or so before the destruction of the first temple. Jeremiah was already way back. He was 40 years before the destruction of the first temple. That's when he began. So Ezekiel began much later. And what matters is that he begins his prophetic tenure in Babylonia. He had recently been exiled there. In the year 597, just scrolling us back to our Jeremiah days, 597 was the year that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylonia invaded Jerusalem, took the king, Jehoiachin, the Judean king, and 10,000 of the best and brightest citizens from Jerusalem off into Babylonia. Ezekiel was one of those 10,000. So that's how he got there. He was exiled. He was a captive. And he's now there with a community of ballpark 10,000 people. And over time, that community will grow when the destruction of the temple takes place. So that's our setting. We're shortly before the temple. He will be the prophet in Babylonia during the period of the destruction, whereas his counterpart, Jeremiah, is still in Israel. He's there. They will both be alive for the destruction of the temple. Jeremiah will see it because he's going to be in Jerusalem or at least near it. And Ezekiel is going to be however far away Babylonia is. Today's Iraq, pretty far off. He's going to be prophesying about it and guiding his community over there. So this opens up our book. We have a couple of fascinating issues. Tonight's topic is why Ezekiel is different. You know, Pesach's spirit is still in us, right? Why this prophet is different from all other prophets. The answer is there are several fundamental ways that he is radically different, which is why, by the way, it's all folded into why he sees God better than anybody else or why we see God better in this book than any other one, and also why he gets laws and none of the other prophets do. The two things that frighten the sages, I care about things that frighten sages. I get worried about them myself, to be honest. But if you get to the roots of what Ezekiel is about, suddenly these two big big things make sense to the degree, I'm not going to be able to explain to you the celestial chariot, and even if I could, I wasn't, I'm not allowed to. But, but that all, you can't get public discourses on it. So that's how, yep, prohibited. It's got to be an inner circle of, Talmud already outlaws those things. But it's okay, because I don't know what it means anyway. So what I'm interested in is getting to the roots of Ezekiel's character, which is one of a kind. 
I'm going to say, are there any Kohanim in the room? Because even if I say, don't be insulted, you're going to be insulted. But, but, but don't take it personally. It's really true. What is a Kohen, besides the person who gets the first Aliyah and does Birkat Kohanim and several other honors along the way? Right? He's a priest. But what is a priest's function in the temple? Serve God. Enter the Holy of Holies in the case of the high priest. Good. Sacrifices. He's in charge of the whole sacrificial order. Good. What else? Huh? All the rituals, that's right. If you have to boil down priesthood into two big buckets of job description things, I'll tell you what they are, and David, you already know this, but the rest of us need to know. One job of a Kohen is to be a bridge between the people of Israel and God. So when he's doing those sacrifices, it's really not him. He is Israel. When the high priest walks into the Holy of Holies and he's wearing the breastplate with the names of all the tribes... All of us are standing in the Holy of Holies. He's us. Yes, he's a human being who breathes, who has a family, and all of those things. But he is all of us. And that's one of the jobs of a Kohen. The other job of the Kohen is to bring, be a bridge from God to us. When the Kohanim do the priestly blessing, for example, they're not blessing us. Right? And they shouldn't be blessing us. God is blessing us, and they're the, they're the conduit. Now, the way that Kohanim function, and this specifically pertains to when they are in service, not when they go home to their family or to the shuk. When they are in service, Kohanim have zero personality. Zero. And they're not allowed to have any personality at all. If they do, it is very, very bad. When they're at home, they could have fabulous personalities. I'm sure they play with their kids as best as, as well as the rest of them. But not when they are in service. They must do the service in identical form every single day. They must be wearing their special garments or it's a capital crime. They suddenly are not koanim. They're literally walking clothing and walking furniture from a conceptual point of view. The craziest example of this, you have two, two you know, the radical example, the most radical example of how koanim cannot have any personality at all, period. One is Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron, who just a few weeks ago spontaneously tried to perform incense offering during the dedication of the Mishkan. They were motivated by the deepest of religious motivations. I have no doubt about that. But that's just too bad as far as the Torah is concerned. They entered as Kohanim and were people. You can't do that. They were spontaneous. When you're functioning Kohanim, you must simply perform the ritual exactly as God commanded it. No deviations at all, ever. No personality. And then in the same moment... There's the even more extreme no personality. Aaron is ordered not to mourn. Talk about in, literally inhuman. He watched his sons die in front of him. And Moshe says, the show goes on. When you get home, you can bawl your eyes out. Right? But when you're in service, you're not allowed to be a person. That's what, Kohanim, that's what the kihuna is in the Torah. When you're in service, again, when Kohanim go home, they could be great personalities. Then they're people like anybody else. But when they're wearing their clothing, doing the service, they have no personality at all. Now, Yechezkel, Ezekiel, was a Kohen. And he really has, sorry, no personality at all. To an eerie, crazy, wacky degree. Even if you study the other prophets, you cannot believe how the book of Ezekiel runs until I tell you that sentence, that he functions with zero personality. The reason why he's doing this is because he is bridging priesthood and prophecy into one thing. That's the thesis for tonight, and I think it works great through this book. 
Jeremiah, by the way, also was a Kohen. He identifies himself as a Kohen, but that matters zero in that book. He happens to have been of priestly stock. He could have gotten the first Aliyah. He could have done Birkakonim. Wonderful. That has no role. And in fact, Jeremiah, as we spent some time discussing, has loads of personality. He's probably the most human of all the prophets. Ezekiel is kind of the opposite. He has no personality at all. His personality is shut down, muted, completely gone. And it starts off right away in source number two, the very beginning of the book. In the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, when I was in the community of exiles by the Shabar Canal, the heavens opened and I saw visions of God. Who's talking? Uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel, right? This is the book of, how do you know that Ezekiel is talking? I. It's I. So how do you know it's him? How do you know it's not somebody else? You know that this is the book of Ezekiel because you read the, the source line. Right? If you just open up the book and the first verse says, and I saw you have no idea who it is. It's the first person. Right, it's somebody. <laughs> Some prophet saw it. You don't know that this is Ezekiel. You don't know his name at all. It's incredible. It doesn't. St- and then look at verse 2. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to the priest Ezekiel, son of Buzi, by the Shabar Canal in the land of the Chaldeans. And the hand of the Lord came upon him there. That obviously is the narrator of the book, right? In other words, here's the prophetic editor who puts verses 2 and 3 in there. And then verse 4. I looked and lo, who's talking again? All right. Now, let's just be a finicky editor for just a second here. Okay, all the other prophetic books identify the prophet. And the way the book started is the words of Jeremiah, la, 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 la. That's verse 1. You get the introduction. It lets you know who the prophet is. And then you let the prophet start talking. Why in the world are the introductory verses, verses 2 and 3, instead of, for example, 1 and 2? That's what I would have done. That's what you would have done. That's what all other prophetic editors ever have done. You put the name of the prophet at the top. And the answer is because that, it's not an accident. It's not that somebody blocked and pasted the wrong way. Ezekiel starts off by saying, I because he doesn't have a name. We know his name. His name is Ezekiel. That name appears a grand total of twice in this whole book. Once, you just read it. And the other one, this is easy to remember. Chapter 24, verse 24. Just, it's handy for us. But where God refers to him in some passing reference. That's it. All the rest of the time, either he's speaking and he says, I. And when God talks to him, he calls him Ben Adam, son of man. He doesn't even call him Ezekiel. He calls him Ben Adam, son of man. He is anonymous. He has no personality. Your name makes you. It's generic. That's exactly right. So that's what's going on over here. Rashi says it very beautifully in in Source 2. Rashi Rashi interpreting these verses says that Ezekiel started to talk and the Holy Spirit bursts in to identify the prophet. That's exactly what the book is about. Part 1. That Ezekiel has no name. By the way, Department of Statistics of Prophetic Names. Jeremiah who has a roughly, it's slightly longer book, but not wildly longer. His name appears a whopping 129 times in his book. Who says? Jeremiah. Oh, Jeremiah, I'm sorry. Because he's a personality. You get to hear all about him. You really get to know him. He's a real player. Not Ezekiel. Ezekiel, his name is gone, and when God addresses him more than 90 times, he calls him son of man. That's how God speaks to him. Yeah, Megan. Uh, I just was thinking that maybe uh, when I that I... I, I'm 
I, I think that's a beautiful poetic flourish. On the first level, though, it's definitely, he's talking about his personal vision. But then you're right, there's something to that. Now, you should know that there's a view in our sages, based on the book of Jonah, actually, like, how could he run away from God? Like, kindergartners know that Hashem is here, Hashem is truly everywhere. Tune in in three weeks and we shall talk about this. But for now, there's one view that says, oh, he was running out of Israel because God only gives prophecy in the land of Israel. Now, yeah, that's, in other words, that's a rabbinic explanation of what in the world is he thinking, right? Now, the problem here, which is pretty obvious, is, well, the whole book of Ezekiel is revealed in, in Babylonia. There's actually this fabulous story that somebody was giving a eulogy. It's in the Talmud. Somebody's giving a eulogy and said, ah, oh, Rav Huna was such a wonderful sage. He was fabulous. And in fact, had he, he would have received prophecy had he not been in Babylonia. So some little young... Squirt. Young person says, um, but wait, Ezekiel got prophecy in Babylonia, and then his father like kicks him under the table. It's like, stop causing problems. Let the guy give his eulogy. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. The book of Ezekiel is a, is a whole book that was given to Ezekiel in, in Babylonia. It wasn't given in Israel. None of it was. His prophecy begins in, in Babylonia. But what matters to the rabbinic point of view, and this is something which is going to help drive us along here, is that we're living at the bleakest moment in biblical history, and one of the bleakest moments in all of Jewish history. The destruction of the first temple is a big cataclysmic disaster. And everybody thought that the God-Israel relationship is over. And we talked about this already with Jeremiah. Well, here it comes on the Ezekiel side of the story. And one of the surest things that they thought in Babylonia is that God can't relate to us here because we're out of Israel. Exactly what the sages were saying about prophecy. When Ezekiel gets this prophecy, it's not just that, wow, what an awesome prophecy. The fact that he got prophecy at all lets the people of Israel know God is with you in the exile. It's actually a huge statement that Ezekiel got prophecy. It's letting his own community know in Babylonia, yes, we're in Chutzlars, we're exiled, we're banished from the temple, but God is here too. The fact that he gets this prophecy right here, right now, big time important just from that point of view alone. Okay, and by the, I forget where I read this, but it's a good point all the same. I'm sure I've read it in many places. It's good that the Torah was given outside of the land of Israel for this very reason. Like God could have waited. You don't have to do it at Har Sinai. Do it in, in Israel. But that would make it feel like the Torah is binding only in Israel. Right? By giving the Torah outside of the land of Israel, that already shows it transcends all time and space. So Ezekiel now, being the vanguard of the first exilic community that's going to survive as Jews. We have the ten lost tribes, but guess what? They're lost, right? Here's the first time in our history that we have an exilic community that's going to remain Jewish, that's not going to assimilate into the dominant pagan culture. And Ezekiel is going to be there to teach them how it's done. And part of what he gets here is this fabulous prophecy, this overt vision of God. Now, Let's go back to the first verse, on, in, verse in source 2. In the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, right? The 30th year of what? Identify yourself year. I don't know what the 30th year is talking about. The second verse says, on the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile. Okay, that makes sense. So what's the 30th year? 30th year of what? So the real answer to this question is what Ibn Ezra says on the Torah. Ibn Ezra, one of the greatest all-time commentators, 12th century, traveled all over. He was in Spain, Italy, he was in England for a while, France, got around, not, not always by choice. He was often persecuted in fleeing places. But in the meantime, 
He says this is just one of those things that we just don't know. The verse doesn't tell you what it refers to. So he quotes the views that were already prevalent in the 12th century. One is the Talmudic, is a Talmudic view that, well, just pull out your calculator. If we're in 592 BCE right now, well, let's scroll back 30 years. What year are we in? 622. Don't forget, we're still BCE, right? 622 was 30 years ago. Well, that was a big year. That year was the year of Yoshiahu, or Josiah's, Reformation. That's when they found the Torah scroll, and there was a huge Reformation, and they eradicated all the idolatry. Okay, so that's a pretty big thing that happened 30 years ago. Problem. We never date events by other events. One might say in the fifth year of so-and-so king. That's, that's usually where it goes. We don't date this to 30th year since Yoshiahu's Reformation. That's not an event for which you're going to get dating. And even if you wanted to make that dating, why date this to that? What's exactly the connection? Here is a prophetic revelation in Babylonia, whereas there just was a fabulously good religious moment, in fact, the last religious moment in Judean history before the destruction. There's one view that even Ezra quotes, that the 30th year means when Ezekiel was 30 years old. We're getting really desperate here. Prophets never tell us how old they are. First time I taught Ezekiel, I was turning 30, so I identified with him very greatly, at least on this, on, on this front. But, so what? I'm glad to hear if he's 30-something, but, but, but why should that matter? And I'll tell you why it matters and why I think that this is a great view. You see, he's a Kohen, right? We don't know exactly when Kohanim start service, but we do know when Leviim start service. What age do they start service? The answer is, even if you don't know, it's 30. And till when do they go? 50. Till 50. Very good. So let's say for just a moment that Ezekiel's first prophecy is when he is 30 years old. Scroll down to source number three. His very last prophetic vision was in the 25th year of our exile. So how old would he be then? If the first vision, first prophecy was in the fifth year of our exile, so his last prophecy is 20 years later. In other words, he'd be 50. Oh, see, this is why this gets kind of cool. Rabbi Yosef Chayun, one of the last great rabbis in Portugal in the 15th century, he was one of Abarbanel's teachers and mentors. He thought that this was the way to fly also. He thought that that's what Ezekiel is identifying here. He's identifying his age, which is very weird. But if he's making a statement saying, I'm 30 years old today. I should be serving God in the temple in Jerusalem. This is when my tenure as a Kohen begins. And it went exactly the 20 years of what would have been his priestly tenure had there been a temple. By the 25th year, the temple has long been destroyed. Ezekiel, if this is correct, is signaling us that his prophetic career, his priestly career, excuse me, is eclipsed or joined with his prophetic career. His prophesying in Babylonia is his priesthood. He can't serve in the temple because he's in exile, and shortly thereafter the physical temple is destroyed also. But his way of being a priest is by getting prophecy in Babylonia. And since his prophetic tenure is priestly, unlike all the others, that's why he has no personality. Right? Because Kohanim don't have personality when they are in service. This is very important for understanding what's going to happen in the next in the next week. If we go to, after he sees his whole celestial chariot number one, we go to source number four here, God begins to speak to him. And he said to me, meaning God spoke to Ezekiel, 
O mortal, or in Hebrew, Ben Adam. This is how God always, always addresses Yechezkel, Ezekiel. He does not call him by name. Stand up on your feet that I may speak to you. And he spoke to me, as he spoke to me, a spirit entered into me and set me upon my feet. I heard what was being spoken to me. He said to me, O mortal, I am sending you to the people of Israel, nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They as well as their fathers have defiled me to this very day. Defied, forgive me. Defied me, thank you. For the sons are brazen of face and stubborn of heart. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus said the Lord God, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious breed, that they may know that there was a prophet among them. It's the bleakest prophetic mission ever. It's like, go talk to the people, but I'll tell you, they're not going to listen to you. But I need you to tell them, so that way God's word has been revealed to them. So that when things happen, you'll be able to say, God's word was revealed. So far, so good. So what should Ezekiel do, being a good prophet? Go up there and do it. Now we have examples. Who, are, who else? We have reluctant prophets in our history. This is not the only reluctant prophet. Who else is reluctant? Yermiyahu was, and God shut that one down right away. Who else? Yonah by running, and the classic of them all, of course, Moshe. Right? Moshe, is the, he was also very reluctant. So if, if I tell you that Ezekiel is going to be reluctant, okay, he's got company. But the way that he does his reluctance is by just sitting there. It's eerie. He doesn't run away. That's dramatic. He doesn't protest like Moshe and like Jeremiah. He just sits there. And God says, go, don't be a rebel. You have to tell them. And, and going to source number five, where you get to see all of this, right? A spirit seized me and carried me away. I went in bitterness and the fury of my spirit, while the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. And I came to the exile community that dwelt in Tel Aviv. That's not our Tel Aviv. That's one in Babylonia. By the Shabar Canal. And I remained where they dwelt. And for seven days, I sat there stunned among them. So here he's supposed to tell the people, and he just sits around for seven days. You can just imagine, everybody's waiting. Whoa, the prophet must have had this incredible vision. What did he tell you? For seven days, sits there. It's, it, it's creepy. Okay, then, but wait, there's more. After those seven days, verse 16, the word of the Lord came to me. Oh, mortal, I appoint you watchmen for the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, you must warn them for me. Hello, I told you, you're supposed to do something. All right, you're the watchman. You have a job. You must warn the people. If I say to a wicked man, you shall die, and you do not warn him, you do not speak to warn the wicked man of his wicked course in order to save his life. He, the wicked man, shall die for his iniquity, but I will require a reckoning for his blood from you. What is he telling Ezekiel? Do it or else. Do it or else. You're responsible here. Yes, these people are wicked. If, if they're sinning, I will punish them. But I'm telling you, you've got to warn them. And if you don't warn them, then you also are accountable. So that sounds like a not-so-subtle divine hint. Like, get to it already. I sent you on a mission. Go talk to them. Yeah. You know why it seems there that it pays for him to have basically a cipher as a public personality that then he can never be accused, in this case, when he obeys God's order, that it's a vendetta on his part. They'll know, I have no feelings this way, I have no feelings that way. That's the way I am. He won't say it literally, but it'll be evident that so. And so when he carries out God's work, it 
has to be God's word, not his own. Very good. I, I happen to think that from a different angle, what you're saying is very important in terms of what he's actually trying to do. So we'll get back to your point in just a little while. But for now... Verse 19, but if you do warn the wicked man and he does not turn back from his wickedness and his wicked course, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have saved your own life. So he tells Ezekiel in no uncertain terms, you better go warn them or you're going to be held accountable also. To which Ezekiel responds, no, he doesn't, he doesn't talk. He just sits there. It's absolutely amazing. And I'm sitting here going, what is going on? So people, of course, you know, modern psychologists say, okay, he's got whatever this or that, you know, they diagnose him. Oh. And, and not only is it just wrong, it's, it's missing the point. Ezekiel's, like, he has no personality, get it? That's the whole point of the book. And it's not, a, it's not some bad personality disorder that he is struggling with over here. It's not that he's hallucinated. No, he's a prophet, but he's a different kind of prophet from everybody else, which is what the sages were so worried about. But Ezekiel's sitting here just in absolute silence. Okay, so we get it. He's reluctant. He does not want to do this. God is saying, come on, Go. Go, don't be a rebel. You're a watchman. Go. Nothing. He doesn't even respond no. He doesn't say why me. He doesn't say pick somebody else. He doesn't say no. He doesn't hop on a boat and try to run away. Nothing. He just sits there. So finally, God comes back to him in verse 24. And a spirit entered into me and set me upon my feet. And he spoke to me and said to me, Go shut yourself up in your house. As for you, O mortal... Cords have been placed upon you. Not literal ropes, but, you know, don't move, basically. Right. And you have been bound with them, and you shall not go out among them. All right. You don't want to go out and rebuke the people like I told you to a thousand times? All right. New mission. Sit at home and don't move. All right. And I will make your tongue cleave to your palate, and you shall be dumb. You shall not be a reprover to them, for they are a rebellious breed. When I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who listens will listen, he who does not will not, for they are a rebellious breed. It is very harsh. It's amazing, though. There was a 12th century commentator who only has been rediscovered in the last century or two. I mean, for a long, long time, he was just in lost manuscripts and wasn't part of the canon of the standard commentators that we would be looking at. But another, another benefit, I apologize. These people who just don't turn off their sound on their phones. Hold on one second. It was a 12th century commentator. He was a northern France school. His name was Rabbi Eliezer of Belgian Sea. He was one of the what's called Belgian Sea or Beaujance, right? So Belgian Sea. But he lived, he was one of the Balea Tosafot. He was one of the great Talmudists who wrote glosses on the Talmud and who often disputed with the you know, founder of the whole school, Rashi. So Rabbi Eliezer of Belgian Sea wrote fabulous commentaries on many of the books of Tanakh, including Ezekiel. I, I think I'm crazy about his work in general. I think he's so good. So he comes up with a fabulous insight into the passage that we just read. He said, originally, Ezekiel was rebelling by being mute, right? The whole point is that God was saying, go, rebuke them. And Ezekiel was sitting there reluctantly disobeying God. So what God does here, it's a neat move. He morphs Ezekiel's muteness into his mission. It's not rebellion anymore. He's saying, okay, you want to be mute? Go be mute. Right? Which I, I, like, I like that slant. I think that that's a, an excellent... An excellent way of describing it. In other words, Ezekiel's muteness is now going to become a defining feature of his prophecy. It goes with his silence. It goes with his non-personality. It goes with his no name. And by the way, it works really great. 
Because what happens is he obviously was very well respected by the Babylonian Jewish community. So they just the elders would go to his house to find out the word of God. He actually didn't have to go to the shuk like poor Yirmiyahu and the others. He would just stay there, not move. And people would come to find out the word of God. We find out very tragically later, all the way in chapter 33, it's a, it's, it's a funny point. It turns out that many people would go listen to Ezekiel because he was just a fabulous orator. He was entertaining people. It was like better than going to the theater. They would go there, listen to him, go on and on about God. And they'd all clap, possibly you know, throw him a quarter. And then they, they ignored anything he had to say. They didn't heed his message, but he was a pleasure to listen to. And he, he drew quite a crowd. Now, I said, there seems to be a disconnect. I don't comprehend the idea that God talks to you when you say no. If God came to me, I wouldn't have the chutzpah to say, you know, no, I'm not bothering you. I'm not doing it. Right away. It's Moshe, I understand. He was the first one. Why are you playing with it? But Jeremiah or Ezekiel, it's, it's like this, this, this omnipotent force is talking to you. And you know it's God. I'm just saying, well, you know, too bad God. You know, right. Like, well, look, at least in the case of Jeremiah, I understand it better. Because he's also, he's being humble. Who am I to go? Right? I'm, I'm, I'm unworthy. I understand the humility, and that's probably why he got picked in the first place. But Ezekiel is a whole different ballgame. I mean, I'm sure he's very humble. But this, he's not expressing humility the way that Moshe and Yirmiyahu did. He's, exp- he's expressing this unbelievable reluctance. If you ask me, I have no idea why he's so reluctant, other than God said, you're bound to fail. That might be part of it. God says, go, even though they're not going to listen to you. You might not want to do that. Part of it might just be, okay, what would you rather be doing? communing with God and seeing these fabulous celestial chariot prophecies or going to people who are rebellious who you know won't listen? Where would you rather be? So I continue the conversation with God by being reluctant. Right, but God wants him to get out of there. <laughs> right, but God wants him to get out of there and go, to, go be with the people. So that's, that's what's at stake. Yeah. Correct. So he still talks. To, you're, you're excellent point, and all the commentators ask your question because it's very clear that it doesn't mean that he's going to be silent from now on. He's able to talk to the people, but his muteness is kind of a defining feature of I his prophetic. Okay. In that, it's not a literal uh, cleaving of the tongue. Of Correct. God, or a literal dumbness. It's perhaps reflected in the the dumbness comes out of the fact that the people won't listen to him. It transfers itself. Very good. Very clever. It could, could, could be also. So, so going back to the issue at hand, so what we've seen here is that Ezekiel has no name. He's just O mortal, Ben Adam in Hebrew. There's no personality. He doesn't even talk back to God. You know, it goes to Isaac's point. It just strengthens Isaac's point. Is that it's, it's just so weird. It's eerie after a while. And Ezekiel is just sitting there in a non-response sort of way. So God says, now your passivity is a defining feature of your prophetic tenure. What happens later is another inhuman side of the book of Ezekiel. It's in source six, but it all, it all, it all ties together. Right before the destruction, this is the last chapter in the book of Ezekiel before the destruction of the temple, actually. O mortal, I am about to take away the delight of your eyes from you through pestilence, but you shall not lament or weep or let your tears flow. Moan softly, observe no mourning for the dead. Put on your turban, put your sandals on your feet, do not cover your 
over your upper lip and do not eat the bread of comforters. The person who he's talking about is Ezekiel's wife. Mrs. Ezekiel dies in this chapter. And God is saying, your wife is going to die of a plague. That's the delight that he's referring to over there. And he's saying, and you're not allowed to mourn. Which sounds strikingly like Moshe ordering Aaron. You're not allowed to mourn for your sons. So Ezekiel's wife dies. You know, the halachic man part of the Talmud, what do they do here when, when, on the verses that we read? Where it says, put on your turban and put, on your sandal, put your sandals on your feet. So the Talmud says, oh, you see, a mourner is not allowed to wear a turban and a mourner is not allowed to wear shoes. Whatever God is saying, Ezekiel, don't do these mourning practices. That's actually how we learn mourning practices. We could see what the Israelites were doing. So what's the point of telling Ezekiel he's not allowed to mourn for his now dead wife? The answer is, A, because he's a Kohen, he's a priest prophet, so he has no personality. The other part is that he is an analogy to the rest of the people, which is what Megan was actually saying before. Verse 21. Tell the house of Israel, Thus said the Lord God, I am going to desecrate my sanctuary, your pride and glory, the delight of your eyes and the desire of your heart, and the sons and daughters you have left behind shall fall by the sword. Accordingly, you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover over your upper lips or eat the bread of comforters. When the temple is destroyed, nobody's allowed to mourn. Nobody's allowed to mourn? Really? We, we mourn. Right? Here we are thousands of years later. We mourn for this. Rightly so. It's amazing. But God is ordering Ezekiel not to mourn for his wife, and he's ordering the community not to mourn for the temple when it's being destroyed. And that's because Ezekiel and the people in this regard are shut down. They're like personality-free kohanim. They're all being like priests. And there's two benefits to that, one of which I want to talk about tonight, and then the other one is what next week is all about, and then we'll go celebrate Yom Ha'atzma'ut together across the street. This is the bleakest moment in, in biblical history. Again, when everybody thinks this is, the, this is the break, there's a rupture here. The temple is destroyed, there's an exile, the God-Israel relationship is over, let's assimilate, become Babylonians, the end of the God-Israel project. When Ezekiel gets prophecy in Babylonia that already says, whoa, 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 God is here. He's functioning as a priesthood, albeit a very weird priesthood because he's not in a temple, but his prophetic tenure is priesthood. Well, that means, hey, we can actually serve God over here. And then comes the clincher in source number eight. Say to them, say then, excuse me, thus said the Lord God, I have indeed removed from them, removed them far among the nations and have scattered them among the countries. And I have become to them a diminished sanctity in the countries whither they have gone. In Hebrew, the, the diminished sanctity is mikdash me'at. The idea is, that the real Mikdash, the big Mikdash, is the temple. That's in Jerusalem. But God's presence in the exile is Mikdash Me'at. It's diminished, but it's there. It's there. In fact, the sages derive from this verse. That's what we call synagogues. Synagogues are called Mikdash Me'at in Halakha and have certain laws that pertain to the temple that we follow in any synagogue. And it's all based on exactly this, this verse. The idea is that, okay, the synagogue is not a temple, it's far diminished in terms of its sanctity. It's not the way it's supposed to be, but God is here too. What a revolutionary message by Ezekiel through his prophecy by being a prophet priest. That's one of the most important points of the book, which he drives home time and time again. He's saying, okay, 
We're not in Jerusalem, and then after a certain point, there is no Jerusalem. Jerusalem has fallen. But God is with us in the exile, revealing prophecy. We're here. We're a mikdash me'at. It's diminished sanctity. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But it means that God is still with us, even in exile. This was a revolution. This is something that he said to the people of Israel at that critical juncture, which is why you and I are here today. He's a prophet of hope. Correct. But even in the bleakness, he's, he's very bleak, yeah. but even in his bleakness, he's a prophet of supreme hope, the idea that, that he's there at all. And there's one last point, and that's what next week is going to be about. Be ready to have it. If, you didn't think, if this didn't rock your world, wait till next week. Holy moly. Because Ezekiel is entitled to no prophecy, and the people are not allowed to mourn, that means that the human dimension is completely shut down. Like the parts of the whole rest of Tanakh, there's a lot of human dimensions. It's all the God-human interaction, and we get lots of people in there, because that's the way it's supposed to be. In our book, the people are shut down. They're muted. They're not allowed to mourn. They have personality-free cast of characters. And that's because this book really only has one character, and that is God. In the book of Jeremiah, when the temple is destroyed, we want to cry. Jeremiah wants to cry. There are lamentations. It's miserable. You feel the pain of the people because there's the human side of it, right? It was horrible. In the book of Ezekiel, the only one who is allowed to mourn is God. And boy, oh boy, does God mourn in our book. You actually feel God's emotions in this book like none other. Not only do you see God through all of these visionary experiences, but you're going to feel God's pain over the destruction. You're going to feel God being driven away from his home. In, the, in Jeremiah, you don't hear about that side of the equation at all. You hear about the temple in Jerusalem falling, and that's bad for the Jews. Well, this is bad for God. And you know, just one, one, last, one last note on this score, that you know, we're the Mikdash Me'at. We have no personalities over here at all. Jeremiah can write the book of Lamentations, but in our book, it's only God who's writing these Lamentations. God is the mourner of this book, and therefore it is inappropriate for people to be mourning alongside him. Because God is the mourner. And that's an overwhelmingly powerful point, and one that we're going to carry with us when we get to next week, where we focus on, it's a spooky topic altogether, God's personality in the book of Ezekiel. Because this is where you get to see it louder and clearer and more explicit and in a revealed way that is not remotely paralleled in anything. And I promise you one thing, even though we're going to really go for it next week, I am pretty confident that no firebolts are going to come out of the walls as as befell that poor kid at the beginning of the book. One thing that happens to be particularly appropriate, I didn't time time this year for this particular night, but it's kind of great that we're celebrating Yom Asma'ud right now, that here we are in exile but celebrating this unbelievable miracle. And I'll jump ahead to one point from, you know, for two weeks from now, and then we'll cross the street. Everybody's invited to join the Yom Asma'ud celebration. The... Expression in, you know, Ezekiel has that vision of the dry bones coming back to life, one of the most famous celebrated prophecies. It's chapter 37. We'll get there in two weeks. But one of the expressions is he quotes the people saying, that we've lost our hope. And the writers of the Hatikva drew, drew from that vision. That's where it comes from. Ezekiel, we haven't lost our hope. For 2,000 years, we held on to this tikva, this hope for restoration. And here we are, Baruch Hashem. It's a miracle that there's a state of Israel. Let us all.